Welcome to Crime Conversations, the true crime podcast brought to you by CrimeCon UK, the ultimate true crime weekend. In the lead up to CrimeCon in London on September 25th and 26th, each week we're bringing two of our favourite podcasts together to find out more about their fascination with true crime. Each conversation will explore subjects including how they got involved in true crime, the cases that have stuck in their mind, the process behind their podcast, and what they think makes a great true crime show. We'd also like to say a big thank you to all those true crime fans who sent questions to ask our guests. To find out who we'll be featuring on the podcast across the season and for more information on our London event, check crimecon.co.uk or visit our Instagram page at crimecon underscore UK. Let's find out who's on this episode. Hi, I'm Eileen, one of the hosts of Crime Lapse, along with Charlie, my brilliant co-host, who unfortunately won't be joining us on this episode because she's too busy being an absolute hero and recovering from surgery. Crime Lapse is an independent storytelling-style podcast that uses primary case audio to give you an immersive insight into each case. I also co-host The Shattered Window with Emily, which is an investigative series into the unsolved murder of Jacqueline Wallaby. Hi, I'm Emily, the host of Morbidology. Each week on Morbidology, I uncover a new true crime case using investigative research combined with source audio. It's a victim-focused podcast that mostly covers cases that aren't widely documented in mainstream media. I also like to take an in-depth look at any systemic failures which had a part to play in the crime. So what got you into true crime and starting a podcast? Oh, good question. Um... Well, I've had an interest in true crime from quite a young age. My um, my mum's actually a massive, massive true crime reader, especially when I was growing up. More more so now she's into fiction, but when I was a kid, it was all true crime, and she literally had hundreds of true crime books. I remember when I was around eight or so, that's genuinely no exaggeration, I asked if I could read her book on Fred and Rose West. She understandably said no, but I took it and read it anyway. Um, As you know yourself, the case is absolutely horrific. I'm sure I read it and genuinely had no clue what was going on. But from then on, I always tried to steal her true crime books. Um, Then as I grew up, I became more interested in the psychology side of crime and started my college course in the psychology of criminal profiling before taking more of an interest in the legal side of crime, as well as societal and political factors which had a part to play in the crime. So that's why in Morbidology episodes, I'll usually cover cases that highlight issues um, within, for example, the justice system, policing, or the child protection system. I I actually started the, the podcast after I finished writing my third true crime book, Cults Uncovered, I found myself with a lot more time than usual and wanted to branch out. Um, As you probably know, I already had the website Morbidology where I would write about true crime cases from all across the world. And I thought I'd just build on that. Um, I've always been obsessed with true crime podcasts and was literally listening to hours of podcasts each day. I'd always been a bit apprehensive about starting my own because of my accent and my voice. It's not... Um, you know, when you listen to a true crime podcast, it's usually really polished voices with pretty common accents. And um, that made me always a, a bit apprehensive. 
But um, one day I just decided I would go for it, give it a go and see what happened. And here we are almost two years later. I'm glad you did it. Yeah, yeah, no, same here. It's kind of funny now thinking like two years down the line, it's still going. I thought it was going to be like, you maybe do one, two episodes and like give up after a while because nobody's listening to it. But I was pleasantly surprised. What about yourself, Eileen? What got you into true crime and starting Crime Lapse? Well, I was always interested in science when I was a kid, like especially forensics, and it was my dream to work as a pathologist. I remember saying it in, we had like um, someone come to our school. Oh, like career day? Yeah. And I said that I wanted to be a pathologist and he like laughed and he was like, you know that like there's like the state pathologist. And I was like, okay. So then I realized that like, I was very unlikely to get a job in Ireland. Oh yeah, it's the we same. We don't have many. Yeah, it's the same here in the north yeah. as well. I was obsessed with CSI, cold case, like any true crime stories. And for Christmas, I always got fingerprint kits and facial reconstruction oh kits. Yeah, it was mad. I got like this skull and I had to like build a face. Oh my God, that's really so cool. cool. Yeah, it was really cool. Um, once I decided that I wouldn't be able to get a job as a pathologist, I started pursuing journalism. And I went to college for a year and it was there that I realized that it was not for me. The way some reporters approach crime in Ireland felt like sensationalist and exploitative. Um, I never wanted to knock on a victim's door and berate them with questions or re-traumatize them. So years later, when my friend Fern said that she was thinking of starting a true crime podcast, I said that I'd do it with her. Because it combined my interests, which are writing and true crime. And we had no idea what we were doing at the start, but luckily we were taken under the wing of other podcasters like you. Mm-hmm. So Fern began her own venture, Evidence of a Crime, and Charlie came on board with me in Crime Lapse, and we started over again last May. I knew that I wanted to make it as detailed as possible while remaining victim-focused and possibly yeah, totally. highlighting some of the issues that impact victims and crime rates. Charlie is a very empathetic person, and she studied law for a time, so she often has an understanding that I may not have. And she's newer to true crime, so she often has a fresh perspective on mm-hmm. things that hasn't been tainted by, like, any of the media coverage. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's a good way to look at it's it. It's important. I had very little experience with other true crime podcasts. I was writing and researching, which I knew how to do from college. That was my comfort zone. And I'd listen to, like, Black Hands, you know, the series, and I'd listen to Oh, Case yeah, Wild. yeah, yeah. But I had no idea how many true crime podcasts were out there. no. Even There's though I was so a massive many. true crime podcast fan, it, it wasn't until I actually had a podcast that I realized how many there were. I literally so would listen to like 15 on repeat, but I didn't realize there was literally thousands out there. And it's for them. There's so many, but it's not an easy thing to do. No, at all. Like I had to learn how to produce audio, edit episodes. Like I love doing that now. It's so mm. weird because I have ADHD, so piecing together the audio feels like therapeutic to me in a weird way. It feels like a puzzle <laughs> because I can see it come together. That's why you produced our episodes of The Shattered <laughs> Window. That is the worst part of podcasting I'm, for I'm me. I'm so I hate weird. It. I love I it. it. Oh no, I don't. I like listening to it. Like once it's complete, I'm like, oh, I did that. That's great. But actually doing it, I just get fed oh, it feels up. feels like a jigsaw. <laughs> No, (laughs) you love jigsaws. I love audio (laughs) editing. Um, I knew that I wanted like crime lapse to be narrated with no discussion between myself and Charlie because 
I just felt a bit strange and certain myself and you know because it they aren't our stories we're just retelling yeah. them and I really felt like we had a responsibility to do that ethically yeah definitely they're the the type of podcasts I prefer the most you know just strict storytelling that's because I, I I need to concentrate when I'm listening to a podcast and if there's you know like conversations between people I'll I'll end up getting sidetracked me too for sure so um is there a particular type of crime that you cover or what cases tend to catch your interest enough for you to cover them on crime labs well we don't cover anything in particular ideally the cases will be closed just so that we can access the information we need from the police courts or media we'd mm-hmm. also never want to jeopardize an active investigation or speculate at all so we do use audio in our episodes like you do on Morbidology and usually these are from police interviews, press conferences or court recordings. So there's no checklist really. We cover cases that we feel we can tell in a way that's respectful and informative and maybe highlight an issue that could have been handled better or explain why something happened. We tend to cover more obscure or lesser known cases just because we don't want to tell a story just for the sake of it when there's nothing we can add. Mm-hmm. If there is a case we feel needs more exposure or someone reaches out to us to help, we'll always do our best. And there's always deep, deeper themes that run through a story like societal issues or prejudice, mm-hmm. mental illness, stigma or missed chances to catch the perpetrator. I think it's important to highlight those even when they aren't directly linked to the crime because they do give an insight into the time and space that it occurred in. What yeah, about you? definitely. Um, I'm pretty much the same as you. I cover a wide variety of cases and much like crime labs, I also use source audio, including 911 calls, interrogations, court testimony. So I'll always cover a case that has a lot of that information available either publicly or via a freedom of information request. I um, I also like to cover cases that are a little bit more obscure and cases that maybe didn't get enough attention in the mainstream media, as you said. I don't really want to rehash, you know, all of the most well-known true crime cases and instead bring my listeners a case they've possibly never heard of. Um, I think there's there's a moral responsibility when it comes to investigative journalism and there's a thin line between reporting and sensationalism and that's something I always have on my mind when I'm writing Morbidology episodes. It's extremely imperative to me that when I'm telling someone else's story, I get the balance right and give justice to the victim and their story. Um, The last thing I want to do, obviously, is do a disservice to somebody when telling their story. And that's why much of the episodes of Morbidology will focus on the victim as a person as opposed to just a name in a newspaper. As obviously you know yourself, quite often when it comes true crime writing, whether it's in podcasts, books, newspaper articles, wherever, the victim can become lost. I like to remind people in the episodes that these are real people. They're real people with personalities, hobbies, ambitions, and friends and family who love them. So, for example, this week's episode was on the disappearance of Jalik Rainwalker, and it was requested by the Justice for Jalik Rainwalker Facebook group. And last week's episode was on a string of murders in Barry in 1993. And that one was requested by a listener who had a really close connection to the case. And think if someone's reaching out to you and they trust you to tell someone else's story, then you really do need to go about it in an ethical way. And that's something that we've both touched on in 
the shattered window as well. Yeah, definitely. And even when it's someone asking you to cover it, it, it is your duty to investigate all angles. Yeah, so like, you don't want to be biased. Exactly. What's your research process? Oh. <laughs> um, I usually have a big, massive list of, no exaggeration, about 40 cases. Um, it's just cases, you know, I'm, I'm reading about in the media, cases that you're following on trial and I always make a list of them just as, even if I don't cover them, just as potentials to cover in the future. So first of all, I'll file a freedom of information request for a number of those cases and then just wait and see what I get back. Uh, while I'm waiting to get the case files, I've requested as well as any source audio that I've requested. I'll start researching mainly through archive subscription services. They're a fantastic source for more local small town newspapers, uh, things that you won't find on the surface web. I know you're a massive user of the the archive subscription services yeah, as I well. So handy. So depending on long how long it takes for the request to get back, some episodes, they're weeks going on, months in the making, and that's why I'll always file a bunch of requests at the same time. I um I didn't actually publish the first episode of Morbidology until I already had eight written and recorded and another six or so in the pipeline. Uh, I think, I, as we spoke about earlier, I, don't, I think um, when you start a podcast, you don't actually realize how much work goes into it. So like when I'm writing books, I do the same. But when you're publishing one episode per week, it's a lot more time consuming. Like you've got to focus on that specific case and then move on to the next one instead of just one thing and that's a big big learning curve what about yourself what's your research process for crime labs mine's quite similar to yours i'll start with researching as much as i can to see if i can get a full picture of what happened and understand it enough so that i can structure my script in a new way um, like you said newspaper archives are amazing for sources and a lot of the information about the crime comes out during the trial process so I'll always try to get transcripts or watch the trial itself or read any coverage which is obviously really time consuming but I feel like I wouldn't be doing it right if I didn't absolutely exhaust all of the information that's available Mm -hmm, so either myself or Charlie will take responsibility for a case and we'll go through the information to structure it as we normally do which is not only the crime itself but any background information trial procedure and the aftermath and with our series, The Shattered Window, it was a bit different, wasn't it? Yeah. Definitely. You had already researched Jacqueline Dewallaby for your book, and we worked on expanding every bit of information and contacting everyone we could to build a clearer picture of what happened at each stage of the investigation and trial. That was really time-consuming. Yes. It took us around yeah, nine, nine months, months of working yeah. almost every day to get the information we needed. And because we're in Ireland as well, and the people we were contacting were mostly in america it was the time, the time difference. difference was just awkward at times well, we were really lucky that we were able to speak to them like david protest mm-hmm. rob warden joseph Cosman, linda patrine catherine and bob byman who went as far as sending us trial transcripts from the original trials and the appellate yeah. hearing we were so lucky to have them i know it was a, a good experience it was brilliant and we ha- also had to learn as much as we could about the other aspects that are in the series like the legal process, appellate court, forensics, and also to examine our role as the members of the media in a case like this that was so influenced by one-sided mm-hmm. coverage. 
for a period of time. Yeah, definitely. Having an investigative series on just one case, it was completely different than covering a new case per week. So, for example, we'd spend ages looking at one specific angle and then we'd find out something new which completely contradicted that angle that we spent so much time researching and investigating. In a way, you kind of become obsessed with the case, even more so when it's an unsolved case and you really want to see justice served. I think for me personally, and probably for you too, Eileen, working on that one case for so long and getting so involved in that one case, it really taught me quite a lot, both about investigative research as well as writing in general and the media. So is there a moment or a case that has really impacted you? For me, it would be when we were working on those impacted by homicide to raise awareness of the parole process in Ireland and how it affects victims and their families. I think it's easy to hear a story and think, oh, that's awful. I'm glad they got justice and think that's the end of it. It's all wrapped up. But the reality for those impacted by crime is that they have to go through so much more like parole hearings and trying to move forward with their lives. Speaking with mothers who've lost their children like Helena O'Connor, Anne McLean and Kathleen Chada, as well as Sinead O'Leary who survived an attack that killed her best friend and Gina who spoke to us about her cousin Fiona Sinnott who's still missing. That really reminded us of the importance of ethical reporting, that we had a duty to the people we speak about. I think there's so much true crime media these days that people become desensitised to the content and almost consume it as entertainment. Mm -hmm. We want to remind people that these are real lives that have been taken and destroyed. Yeah, I think that's really, really important and that's such an impressive thing that you've done with Crime Labs. And I know you don't like talking about yourself, but I have to say, <laughs> you should be so proud of your career, Emily, not only as a podcaster, but as a writer. You've written three books and co-wrote another. I honestly don't know how you do it all and stay so humble. Cults Uncovered, <laughs> Mysteries Uncovered, and of course, Unsolved Child Murders, where you first wrote about Jacqueline de Wallaby. I think it says a lot about you that over three years since you first wrote about it, you felt as though you could give it more exposure through the series. And I personally have learned so much from working with you and being your friend. And if I didn't know how normal you were in real life, <laughs> I, would normal think, in life. <laughs> I would think that you were a celebrity and... I know you're not one to brag about your accomplishments or ever <laughs> acknowledge them, but congratulations on 100 episodes of Morbidology, and I'm uh, honoured to be your co-host on The Shattered Window. Oh, uh, yeah. You have me cringing. <laughs> <laughs> so we're both massive true crime documentary fans, but if you had to recommend just one true crime documentary, what would it be? This is such a tough question because, as you know, I am literally watch true crime documentaries every single night but I would like to recommend one that um it doesn't seem to be as well known as than, it should be yeah like I, I was when I was googling it the other day I saw that it was actually up for an Oscar I think it was which I had no clue about because everyone I ask they have no idea what it is so um the documentary I would like to recommend is 13th it came out in 2016 and it takes an in-depth look racial inequality as seen through the prison system in the United States. It begins by stating that 25% of the world's population who are incarcerated are incarcerated in the United States, despite the fact that the United States has just 5% of the world's population. It shows the massive growth in the prison population in the United States. 
For example, in 1970, there were around 200,000 Americans incarcerated, but now that number is more than 2 million. So, the documentary is called The 13th because of the 13th Amendment to the United States Constitution, which abolished slavery. However, there was a loophole in the wording of the 13th Amendment, and that loophole was, except as a punishment for crime. This loophole would open the doors to an era of mass incarceration. So the documentary 13th highlights the way that those words have been exploited as a way to maintain institutional racism from the end of the Civil War all the way to 2016, which is when the documentary was made. It touches on the civil rights movement and takes a look at the murder of Emmett Till, as well as the film The Birth of a Nation and Ronald Reagan's declaration of the war on drugs, which was exposed as an effort to decrease black votership as well as President Clinton's 1994 crime bill of mandatory minimum prison sentences and three strike policies. So the documentary 13th is an extremely powerful and eye-opening documentary. It shows that essentially slavery still exists in prison with mass incarceration and sweatshops and that it exists in overwhelmingly black ranks. It also highlights that the prison system in the United States is geared against people of colour and it does so in a very detailed and impressive way, as opposed to just spouting emotionally charged statements. So, throughout the documentary, we'll hear we hear from historians, politicians on both sides of the coin, college professors, social activists, and more. It paints a very disturbing picture to show that after slavery was abolished, the United States needed a way to economically recover from the Civil War. At the time, the main source of income in the South was cotton picking. This led to an erroneous perception of criminality towards black people. This combined with the rise of big corporations benefiting from the labour of prisoners led to a justice system which is set up against those it claims to protect. Throughout the documentary, which is directed by Ava DuVernay, she reminds the viewers that before black people were painted as perpetrators of crime, they were the victims of it. It's a very emotional and distressing watch, which includes footage of Eric Gardner, Landro Castile and Tamir Rice. As far as I'm aware, it should still be on Netflix, so you should definitely check out the documentary 13th. And what about yourself, Eileen? Give me a good true crime documentary recommendation. Um, okay, first of all, 13th is an excellent recommendation mm-hmm. and definitely something everyone should watch and try to understand the issues that continue to affect black people. Mm-hmm. For me, it would be Dear Zachary or the Central Park Five. I can't pick one. Oh, it's, it's tough to pick yeah. one. I, I was trying to think, but good picks. Dear Zachary is a letter to a son about his father, Andrew Bagby. Andrew Bagby was murdered in 2001 and his possessive ex, Shirley Turner, was immediately suspected, but she moved away to Newfoundland. She reveals that she's pregnant with Andrew's child and so his childhood friend Kurt begins making a documentary about Andrew's life to show his son. There's a detailed episode on the documentary on What's Up Doc podcast, which is fantastic and it's my go-to for any documentary recommendations. Ooh, I've not yeah. listened to that one yet. Yeah, it's a great documentary, really but I've not, I've not, I don't think I've heard that one. I probably avoided the it episode on the documentary What's Up Doc made me cry. <laughs> oh, see, that's probably why I've avoided it because the documentary... It's one of them documentaries you watch once and then you think about it for the rest of your life and I've watched, never watch it again. I watched it twice because <gasps> I wanted Adam oh, to watch it as well. I couldn't. I couldn't watch it again. I just felt like it was worth going through it again to make sure oh, no. that you see it. 
Have you seen it? Um, no, I don't think I could. Like, the documentary details the grief of Andrew's friends and family, as well as the toxic relationship he had with Shirley Turner and the fight for justice in his death. And it unfolds in real time, so we see Andrew's parents raising their grandson Zachary and Shirley managing to avoid prison for way too long. It's a gripping documentary that you should go into blind, so if you're going to watch it, don't Google anything, but be warned, it will break your heart. It exposes some serious issues within the justice system. Nothing does that like my next recommendation, which is the Central Park Five. I think most people are familiar with this story now because of the dramatized Netflix series, When They See Us. But the documentary is directed by Ken Burns and his daughter Sarah, and it details the 1989 case of a horrific assault on a jogger in Central Park. The people arrested and ultimately imprisoned for the crime were a group of five teenage boys who were vilified in the media. It's such a harrowing watch to watch to see what these boys went through and how racism and prejudice helped railroad them into a false conviction. Yeah, I think that's definitely a good recommendation. It's such an eye-opening documentary, it's both of them. insane. They're both so different, but both highlight some very important issues. I think that's what's great about true crime is that it can really... It open, can do good. Yeah, it can open mm-hmm. your eyes to something and it sticks with you. It I think sticks, yeah. the type of stories that are told in a way that you feel compelled to, to yeah. spread the word about, that's what we need more of in true crime. Oh, definitely. What For sure. do you think, like, why do you think true crime captivates so many people? That's a good question. Um, I think one of the main reasons would be because true crime stories whether it's podcast books tv shows documentaries whatever it involves all of the most emotional subjects so greed violence sex power obsession and death um i think in a way true crime can be quite tantalizing and it can be difficult to look away from so for example when there's a crash at the side of the road people will always slow down and try and get a glance i think in a way true crime allows us to take a look into a world that hopefully none of us will ever experience firsthand. It's so outside the realms of our own safe lives that we can't help but be gripped. Uh, When it comes to true crime, there's a feeling of gratification which can be intensified at the end of the story. But if it's an unsolved case, it kind of creates a global game of whodunit. You know, we like to feel as though we're part of something and especially with social media, we can analyse the evidence put before us become armchair detectives throwing around personal theories and suspects. I agree with you. I think there's a fine line between producing something as entertainment and retelling the worst moments of someone's life. I think at the minute we're seeing a change within the genre where people are becoming more aware of the responsibility true crime creators have to being ethical and respecting those involved. Like Morbidology, Crime Lapse is very much victim-centric and we never want to glorify or romanticise the issues we cover. But we do want people to know that there are so many different factors that influence a criminal case and the criminal themselves. Personally, I want to remove that comfort blanket of people thinking, oh, that is such a tragedy, but it would never happen to me. Because that's desensitizing and I want people to feel impacted by the grief and the struggles that are ongoing in the hopes that it will eventually bring out some change. Mm -hmm. The general interest in true crime has always been around, I mean, How many historical cases have you researched where the crime scene was contaminated by people who gathered to look at the horror? Remember 
Valencia yeah, and the that's just gonna say the one we were speaking about on stereo the other week. People, someone left with a portion of the victim's skull in his pocket. It's one, mm-hmm. like, but people always used to go to crime yeah. scenes, and you know, look how many people stood outside waiting for Ted Bundy. Public to be execu- Yeah, I was gonna say public executions as well. That was a day it's, out for the family always, back in the day. Yeah, it's always been around, yeah. and now you can just kind of do it from a distance. Mm-hmm. So, like. Most of us have a need to try and at least understand how and why things happen. I think it's a kind of self-preservation yeah. thing. And with mainstream media offering that insight, thankfully people aren't <laughs> rapesing through crime scenes and harassing yeah. people as much. And also, we know that women are often the victims of violent crime, and we know that the majority of true crime listeners are female, which I think is down to a desire to know the worst that can happen and see it almost packaged up into like a conclusive mm-hmm. ending and it feels like you said safe it, yeah it's so, so far removed from your normal yeah. life that it feels safe to watch and listen like definitely at times it can be a problematic genre and if especially if speculation goes out of control and i also think it's a powerful genre where there can be true meaningful change as a result of a case getting more exposure someone coming forward with information or spotting signs of danger within their relationship or even in a situation with a stranger. Yeah, definitely. I think it makes you a lot more aware of your surroundings and even aware of other people's surroundings. Yeah. So what tips would you have for anyone who wants to start out their own podcast? Well, first, I think the more people that listen, the more likely you are to receive negative feedback. Unfortunately, people are more likely to complain than to leave a positive review. You don't, you know, I used to work as a chef and you'd rarely get people giving compliments yeah. to the chef. Not because I was back. No, cooked, no, no. But, Nobody does that. Nobody randomly. Yeah. Are, yeah, they're they're quicker to complain. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if it happens, don't let it get to you. If it isn't constructive, then it's not worth worrying about. It takes time to find your style and get comfortable producing it's a lot of work more than most people realize and i mean one episode can take between 40 to 60 hours of actual work at your Mm -hmm. computer and the series took us nine months with the two of us who knew what podcasting takes you know and if it's something you have a passion for and something you can dedicate the time to then go for it my main advice would be to make sure your research is as thorough as possible and always credit and cite where you got the information from Try to be as respectful as possible to the victims, their families and anyone involved. You know, you never know who's listening and try to be as consistent as possible, but focus on quality over quantity. Use your platform for good where you can and don't be afraid to reach out to other podcasters. We all started somewhere and if it hadn't been for Emily and many other seasoned creators, I would not have been able to make Grime Maps my career. Not a chance. That's some very solid advice, I think best bit of advice on top of what you've already said is to not overthink it and just do it so for ages as i mentioned at the start i put off creating a podcast because i assumed that nobody would listen and that those who did listen would hate it either because of my voice or because of the content it also suggests getting a few episodes written and recorded before publishing the first one so that you're not working from week to week or fortnight to fortnight I think people are always surprised at how much work goes into a podcast if it's a scripted podcast and being ahead before you even begin really does make it a lot easier. As Eileen said, 
you need to be consistent with releasing episodes and it can become a bit daunting if you're not on top of it. So definitely get a good couple of weeks ahead before starting. I'd also suggest getting on social media and don't be afraid of reaching out to other podcasters to ask for advice or to even to ask them to listen to your episodes and offer any feedback. Remember when I started, I sent my episode to a few podcasters and asked for feedback and criticism and honestly, everyone was just so lovely. I um, I always play promos for other podcasts on Morbidology, especially podcasts that are just starting out. And there's a lot of other podcasters who do the same. So if you do make a podcast, make sure to reach out, send us a message and we'll have your back. My final piece of advice is to make something that you're proud of. I know it sounds super cliche, but try not to worry or get caught up in the downloads and just create something that you're proud of. Thanks for listening to this special episode. We'll be at CrimeCon in London on September 25th and 26th. If you'd like to come, tickets are on sale now. Go to crimecon.co.uk 